Good morning. You know, it's amazing that in the next 90 days, there's a whole lot going on in the life of this congregation. You might think about uh, what's going to happen with Lads the Leaders and how much is involved in making that happen and all the preliminary work that has gone into that. Uh, you might think about the Ladies' Day that was mentioned. Uh, we have the intentions to uh, take some time to honor our uh, teachers who have been serving us so well. There is uh, our involvement in Bible camp. Uh, and then there are weekly opportunities like Pew Packers tonight. Uh, if you've not uh, been able to be here a little bit early to see uh, Hiram as he leads our kids and uh, it, not only learning Bible facts, but challenging us to grow in our knowledge, uh, they're going to very quickly accumulate a lot of Bible truth that's going to help them and that uh, is an encouragement to us. And then we have the end of the word uh, Bible class every Monday night that we'd love for you to stop by and to be a part of that. And then we're going to be planning pretty soon uh, to talk about our vacation Bible school. So there's a lot going on. It's not busy work. It's not just a bunch of activities so that we can say, as they did in 1 Kings 20 and verse 30, that we were busy here and there. They all are meant to edify us. They are meant to reach out and to address the various needs that we have. But at the heart of all of it, in the heart of all that we're doing, is because we're trying to save and strengthen souls. It's about every, it's at the heart of everything that we are and all that we want to be. And so I pray that you'll be, see how you can be involved, but also pray for these things and encourage those who are leading us in this. How important is communication? You know, we are thinking about communication in every specific area of life in which we consider that communication plays a part. Communication is vital when it comes to congregational life. It's important for us to hear from our sheep and for us to know their voices, John chapter 10. It's important for them to communicate to us the things that we need to know. And it's important for us as sheep to communicate and to have that relationship where we feel like that is a possibility for us as well. Look into the home and think about how important it is for us to communicate. So many failures and problems in our homes occur because there is a breakdown of communication between the husband and the wife and between parents and children and vice versa. Or on the job, think how much, how much you appreciate communication and what it means to you. In every area of life, it's vital. And in our spiritual relationship with God, communication is perhaps most important. It informs, it helps, it challenges every other relationship where we must communicate with others. And when we think about the fact that God allows us with boldness and confidence to come into His very throne room to pray to Him through Christ's sacrifice, that we get to communicate to Him how precious that ought to be. But when we think about God, we know that God is the great communicator. And the Bible is proof positive of, of that. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says that God who in sundry times and in various ways, many portions and many ways, spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us through His Son. God had a lot of different ways to communicate to people throughout the ages, but He has finally and supremely communicated through His Son. Have you thought about some of the ways that God has communicated to humanity throughout the ages? 
God once communicated to a king named Belshazzar with a disembodied hand that wrote that message on the wall. God chose to communicate to Balaam through the talking of a donkey in Numbers chapter 22. God communicated to Aaron and all the subsequent high priests through the Urim and the Thummim in Exodus chapter 28. God communicated to Abimelech and others through dreams, Genesis chapter 20. God chose to communicate to Elijah through a still small voice, 1 Kings chapter 19. And God communicated to Moses through a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And God does this in order to help a leader who is very hesitant to go and lead. He doesn't want to communicate to God's people. He's afraid and he gives excuses. And one of the things he throws up as an excuse to God is that if I go to them and I tell them that you sent me to them, who should I tell them sent me? And God says you're to tell them, I am that I am. I am has sent me, you to me, to them. And as Moses is trying to process all of that, what God is telling him and communicating to him is that what you're about to do rests on the authority and the person of who I am. And when God uses that designation for himself and he says, I am the I am, he is saying, I, I didn't say to you I was... Because that's not true. I am. You strain out into the future as far as you can into the eternity before time. And there's God. God was, God is, and God will ever be. As, As you look out into the future and think and strain, there he will be. He did not say I came into being. He couldn't say that because he is the uncaused cause. He is the self-existent one. He sends him saying, tell them I am the one who has always been. The one who started it all. I am sending you to the people of Israel. I find it very interesting as you look at what God is doing with Moses in the book of Exodus. That there are three times in which God uses the phrase, I am the Lord your God in the book of Exodus. And what's incredible to me is that every time he uses that is before something remarkable is done among the Israelites. And really in front of the whole world. For example, God says in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7 to Moses, I am the Lord your God before the sending of the ten plagues, where he is going to show Pharaoh and Egypt and the Israelites and the whole world, they'll remember it for generations to come, that it is God who is above all other gods. And so he says, I am the Lord your God before he sends the plagues. And then he says in Exodus chapter 16, after he's given them manna, you remember that? They had that bread to eat from heaven and they began to have a taste for uh, meat. And and I don't fault them for that. We may have vegetarians in the audience today, but uh, most of us like a little bit of of meat. They just wanted some fowl. And so they asked for, for there to be meat. And before God sends that quail to them, he sends them with that saying, I am the Lord your God. And then the third time that he uses that saying is in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. He is saying, I am the Lord your God. It is the basis, my name, and all that is found in that name is the basis for what I'm going to tell you that I want you to do in order to keep covenant with me. You know, the Jews for many centuries thought that I am the Lord your God was the first commandment. And they even said it was so, even though it's not a command and it's not in the imperative form. 
what's being said is by that is a recognition that the weight of God's authority and His power is found in that phrase, in that idea of who God is. And so throughout Exodus... God is using that phrase to establish His power and His right to rule over the Israelites. God is saying, if I'm not the God that is being revealed through these miraculous ways, then you have no reason to do what it is that I'm telling you to do. Their acceptance of Him was an acceptance of His Word. To reject His Word was to reject who He was. I flashed up there a minute ago before I had my screen back there. This picture that's somewhat iconic. It's a Norman Rockwell uh, uh, picture that was on the front of the Saturday Evening Post uh, back several decades ago. And uh, as you look at that picture, you see that the butcher behind the counter and behind the scales and the woman on the other side of that aren't looking at one another. They're looking up. And they each have a look in their face, don't they, as as if each has a secret joke that the other doesn't know. And Rockwell lets us in on what that joke is. Now, if you were to accuse either one of them of being a thief, they would be upset. They would never rob a bank. They would never steal a car. But neither one of them thought that there was anything wrong in practicing a little deception if it might make one of them a little money and it might save one of them a little bit of money. The idea is that our ethics, our moral compass can get off if we lose sight of who God is. The God who in His Word is telling us what He wants us to do, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, our basis of obligation and our feeling of submitting to that is tied to who God is. And so as we walk through Exodus, there are those, there are three ideas about God telling us that who He is, that I'm the Lord your God, by telling us His power, by telling us His greatness, there are three things in Exodus chapter 20 that we appreciate. The Lord our God is a delivering God. Before God makes any expectation in Exodus chapter 20 and giving the Ten Commandments, He starts by talking about what His love led Him to do. What God says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2 is that I led you out of the land of bondage, out of Egypt. God points to His grace and His deliverance before He ever makes an expectation of them. The basis of this, that what He wants them to do is proven by the love that He's already shown. Did you know that from the Passover in the book of Exodus chapter 12 to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, over a hundred times God reminds Israel I'm the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. And he's not trying to put a guilt trip on them. He wants them to never forget that who they are, where they're going, and what they're receiving is because God has given it to them. God wants them to understand in His nature, in His character, that God at His core is a giving God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. And anything He expects from us, is predicated upon what He has done for us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we are reminded by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the grace, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Before He gets to the good works that we have been told that we are to walk in, in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, He wants us to be reminded that God has given so much. God delivered us from spiritual slavery, Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. And so at the heart of this 
Ten Commandments, this Decalogue of Moses, this expectation is the idea that the Lord our God is a delivering God. When he gives the law a second time in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's telling them, I don't want you to forget when you get to the land that you're going that it is not your power or the might of your hands that has given you this wealth. It is what I have given you. I led you through the wilderness. I delivered you from drought. And when there was no water, I brought water from the rock. So that you don't get lifted up in your heart and say, My power and the might of my hand has given me this wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He that gives you power to get wealth. That He may establish the covenant which He swore unto your fathers as it is this day, and don't turn away from me. You see, our God, the Lord our God, is a delivering God. But at the foundation of his expectation of them in Exodus chapter 20, we see that not only is he a delivering God, but he is a feeling God. In verse 3 through 6 in Exodus chapter 20, as he is introducing those Ten Commandments, he wants us to understand that God is a God who feels deeply. Now the word that he uses there in verse 5 is the idea of jealousy, but don't think of that in terms of the way that we often think, that we feel jealousy and we sin in our jealousy. We're impulsive and we're sinful in our words and our actions, but God feels those things perfectly. It's a zeal for an object that one seeks to show interest in. It's an eagerness. And what God says is, I eagerly desire you. I have a zeal for you that causes me to long for a relationship with you. As God lays out the Decalogue of Moses, the Ten Commandments for them to follow, He says, I want you to understand that I'm asking this of you because of how much I care about you. I don't know how often you've ever had the opportunity to go out to stand on top of a mountain where you could look out and you could see forever. One of the things that it was enjoyable to do for several years out west was to be able to go out and stand on a 14er, and you, especially at the Continental Divide where you could just look forever and see how vast and how big this little earth is. I don't know if you've ever sat in a boat out in the middle of an ocean and looked out, or if you've ever had the occasion to be out on a ship in the middle of a storm, or if you went out in your backyard and you took your telescope and you looked up into the sky, and as you saw the galaxies, or if it was strong enough, even the galaxies beyond, to tell yourself, God is not jealous for any of that. But God is jealous for little old you and me. You don't have to be a king, you don't have to be a general or a worldwide star. God is jealous for you. And I think about in 1 Peter chapter 2 how Scripture would indicate to us that we're God's special people, the people for His own possession. That being the case with now approaching, they say within the next 20 years there's going to be 8 billion people on this planet. As God looks out over all that vast amount of population, that when God settles His all-seeing eyes on the children of God, He sees us as special, as important, as different And he cherishes his children. That's what God is saying to these Israelites. You're about to go in and you're going to take possession of a land. And it's going to put you in this very vulnerable place on a map. You're going to be in between Egypt and you're going to be surrounded by the Canaanites. And you're going to have these powerful nations uh, all around you. And you're going to have to depend on me. And I want you to know how much I care for you. And if we had time, we'd look in verse 6. He says, if you're obedient to me, I'll bless you. If you're disobedient to me, I will punish you. I have this conditional 
circumstance that I want you to flourish in. I want you to do well in. But I want you to know how deeply I feel for you. But then on the basis of his power and his name, not only do we see that he is a God who is uh, one who shows his desire to be gracious to us, to show us grace, to deliver us, not only that, that he is a feeling God, but Moses indicates to us that the Lord our God is an awesome God. Now God doesn't say that in arrogance. In fact, God doesn't say it. It's implied, isn't it? If you'll look in the text there after the giving of the law, it's the fire and the smoke It's the sound of the trumpet and the people are trembling and they're fearful. And they say, Moses, we want you to be a mediator between us and God. God demonstrates his awesomeness, his infiniteness. And it was on the basis of that that God says that you should be obedient to me. Because I've delivered you. Because I feel so deeply for you. And because of my nature, unconfined, it is an awesome God that you serve. Now, I promise you that the, the main points of this lesson are as brief as the introduction. But I want you to think about how Exodus is demonstrating with that phrase, I am the Lord your God. He is demonstrating that his power is to be revered, that God should be obeyed because of who he is. But that phrase, I am the Lord your God, is found 39 times in the Old Testament. And 21 of those times is found in the book of Leviticus. But every time that God uses that phrase, I am the Lord your God, he's using it in a different way in the book of Leviticus. In other words, on the basis of who I am, there's something I want you to do in response. The book of Exodus is dedicated to showing us the power of God, but the book of Leviticus is dedicated to showing us the holiness of God, but not only that God is holy, but that he wants us to be holy as well. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, and Peter picks up on that. As Christians, even in the midst of persecution, God says, I want you to be holy as God himself is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. So if we were to look at it this way, What God is saying in Leviticus chapter 18, and by the way, I am the Lord is going to be used 14 times in chapter 19. But when he uses that phrase here, he's saying, because I am the Lord your God, there's a way I want you to live and respond. Number one, he says, because I'm the Lord your God, then you should live differently from the culture. There are two cultures that they are faced with as Moses gives his uh, teaching here in Leviticus chapter 18. And both of them could, history shows that both of them did negatively influence the people of God. First was the culture of their past. The culture of their past, verse 3, God's delivering them from that. And the culture of their past was the culture they had been in for four centuries of time. Can you imagine how much it would have impacted them? We have been a part of the American culture for less than 300 years. So over a century more, they had been assimilated into that culture. And you have to imagine that it has an impact on them. And what Moses is saying is, look, I don't want you to live like the culture I'm bringing you out of. Now, in many ways, that culture was very sophisticated. Moses lived during Dynasty 18. And the, the things that went on in that culture showed them to be sophisticated. As the Israelites are out there and they're laboring and doing the various tasks that the Egyptians had given to them, the pyramids had already been built. One of the seven wonders of the world in their background as they worked every day. And Moses, the Pharaoh of his youth, was called incontestably the greatest ruler of the Pharaoh dynasty. He was one who had caused so many initiatives and was such a statement. And the 
the Pharaoh of his adulthood, Amenhotep II, Thutmose the third son, he was an athlete and he was a hunter and he was also renowned for his statesmanship. But they were very backward in a lot of different ways. They were superstitious in their medical knowledge, but they were morally confused and they were religiously confused. They had gods everywhere. Animals were sacred to them. They had gods of trades and ideas. And those they created mythical stories to tie those gods together. And they had priests that, that uh, um, led them in idolatrous worship services. And the Pharaoh said, I'm a mediator between the gods and you. And so this is where they had found themselves. And You'll notice in the wilderness wandering for 40 years, it's the, the, the case that even though they had left Egypt, Egypt had not left them. But what God is saying is you must live different from the culture of your past. Let's press pause for a moment. All of us come to Christ from somewhere. And when we come to Christ from somewhere, the culture of our pre-Christian past is pulling at us. It can make it very difficult for us to live the Christian life. You know something else? Even if you were, as we sometimes say, raised in the church, you come to Christ with inherent weaknesses and struggles. There are things in the culture that pull at you and that continue to be a weakness and a problem for you. It's the culture of your past. And God would say, I want you to be free from that. I want you to leave that behind. But then there was the culture of their present and their future. He says, this is the land I'm bringing you into. Verse 3, and I want you to live differently from that culture. When you think about the fact that the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians were were from the same blood, and the people that lived in the land of Canaan, they were relatives of the Egyptians. They had the same kind of ideas. And many say that the Canaanites taught the Egyptians... There are many gods religion. And what God is saying through Moses to the people is, listen, you've got to live different from the culture in which you find yourself. And it had to be very hard. You know, they have done through archaeology, uncovered various things that prove that the biblical record is true, that they have uncovered from this part of uh, uh, the ancient past that there was ritual prostitution and there was child sacrifice, but they could not find and have not found any code of morality. There was no Ten Commandments-like kind of law, and so they were more morally lax. And this was the environment that God was leading the people of God into. No wonder He wanted them to be completely removed. Their influence, their defilements and their abominations. He says, I don't want that to be a part of you. You know, it's fine. We mentioned a few weeks ago for us to assimilate into the culture in so many different ways. Some for our amusement and some because it helps us ultimately to be able to help the people who are lost in our lives. As we understand the culture, we're people who understand our times, how valuable that is. But there's a line that must not be crossed. You know, I I think about the Hayes Act. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. But it was a, a code that was imposed by the motion picture industry on itself. And it was a code of ethics or conduct with regard to the movies that they were putting out in 1934. And what they said in the course of the making of those movies is that we will never do anything to throw the sentiment of the movie watcher toward wrongdoing and sin and evil and specified certain things that there would not be any kind of promotion or glamorizing of brutalizing or or sexual promiscuity or ridicule of religion and they set out standards for costumes and for dance movements 
I don't know if Hollywood 2022 knows anything about the Hayes Act and that proclamation from 1934. But if they got a hold of it, don't you think that they would ridicule every part and piece of that? And that's in less than a hundred years. Our culture grows more anti-God in its practice and in its profession each and every day. And yet we still find ourselves in the midst of that. And God expects us to be salt and light in that world. And so he tells us there's a way in which he wants us to live, and it's different from the culture. If we had the time, we could look at passages like Ephesians 4, verse 21 through 32, or Colossians 3, 1 through 13, or, or Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And then 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, passages that tell us in those different places, I want you to live differently from the culture. In the Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect word of God. And he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the things of this world pass away, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. 1 John two fifteen through 17. So what God is establishing 1,500 years before Christ, and Christ would have us to see by God's unchanging nature, is that because He is the Lord our God, as we seek to connect with the culture and to understand our culture, we must live differently from the ways the culture lives in violation to the will of God. But Then number two, because He says, I'm the Lord your God, we are to do His will. He'll use that phrase, I'm the Lord your God, a couple of times here. And He says, by doing my commandments and my statutes, you shall live. You know, we could make the argument that if... Israel had simply obeyed these things and not focused on the God part, their lives would have been a whole lot better. If you look at the things that were going on in that very advanced uh, culture of the Egyptians, what God lays out in the book of Leviticus is incredible for its scientific foreknowledge. When I was in college, I had to read a book called None of These Diseases by S.I. McMillan. And he talks about how this very advanced culture for its day had all kind of strange remedies that it, it told people that they were to follow by going to the doctor in order to make themselves better. For example, if one had a splinter, they said you could make a poultice in which you have a, a worm blood and donkey dung. And if you'll rub that in there, that'll make everything better. In fact, until just a couple of centuries ago, It was the prevailing medical view that if you create infection, that you would help people to get better. How many millions of people died because they listened to the superstitious medical expertise of the day? In Exodus 15, verse 26, God says through Moses, if you'll listen to what I say, you can avoid all of these negative ramifications. By obeying the voice of the Lord their God, life would have been better for them medically, physically. How often is that still true? How much better can things be financially for us if we'll follow the stewardship principles of God's Word and much that is said in regards to lending and owning? You know, sometimes we can even be more socially popular by following what God's Word says, but none of that matters to God. It's not what's on His mind at all. God was not worried about primarily saving their physical bodies. He was concerned about saving them spiritually. 
And so he says, a man by doing these things shall live. And so, because he's the Lord our God, we should obey his will. But then I want you to notice this, finally, as we move on. That because he is the Lord our God, we shall live moral lives. There's two more uses of this particular phrase, I am the Lord your God, by which he bookends some moral imperatives. And they break down into basically three categories. And for all that was wrong with them medically in Egypt, they had an even greater problem. They had a sexual problem with their bearings being off, a dysfunction there that God did not want his people to suffer from. And so he deals with heterosexual ethics in verse 6 through 20. He deals with the protection of children in verse 21. And then he deals with sexual deviance in verse 23 and 24. And it's interesting how those principles are very helpful for us. It shows us the mind of God. It shows us where God is and how he wants us to conduct ourselves. You know, we live in sexually confusing times. And some of those struggles and battles have been going on all the way back to Moses' day and really all the way back to the beginning of time. And so he deals with some specifics there in verse 18 and in verse 23. But things like fornication and adultery. And the concern and the warning is that these are the very things that disintegrate our society. And God wants us to know that as well. You know, the Guttmacher Institute indicates that almost 50% of never marrieds between 15 and 19 engage in uh, fornication. And the average age in which that begins is at the age of 17. And when it comes to the statistics about adultery, it's hard to find a reliable source. But anywhere from 30 to 60% of all married people indicate that somewhere in their married life, at least one, they, at one time they've engaged in an affair. There is a website out there whose name I won't dignify by telling it to you that has 40 million subscribers who go there whose tagline is, Life is short, have an affair. You know, when we think about the ethics of the world in which we live, God is saying, you shall live moral lives. Don't be guided by the principles of the land. But then there is those things that have pushed more into the mainstream. Uh, practices like homosexuality. And I know that humanity is, has an ever-evolving view with regard to those things, and we should always act with compassion toward anything that we're talking about in this regard. But while man's views change, God's has not. God's feelings toward that is the same. We'll skip over the one about the children for just a moment to get to this idea of sexual deviance. There are things there that I don't want to repeat, but you got it right there in front of you in Leviticus chapter 18. And you know where folks find desires for these kinds of things in the 21st century world? So often when they say, uh, Dr. William Klein at the University of Utah says that pornography addiction is progressive. And it leads one to desire things that at first one finds repulsive, but they find themselves in the consuming of it to lower their standards more and more and leads individuals into forums like pornography. 75% of all pornography is downloaded through a smartphone. 35% of all downloads on the Internet are pornographic in nature. And what we're seeing in all of this from the, the three areas that we've looked at is that the culture would like to unravel our moral fiber, that the devil would like to undermine and disintegrate society. And these are the ways through which it comes. 
And then there's the idea of the sacrificing of children that the people of the land, through their Molochite worship, they sacrifice their children physically. We don't want to do that, and we certainly wouldn't even imagine that in our society. And yet we never want to sacrifice what's most important. We want to set the spiritual bar for them so that we put God and His will above all else. Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says that we are to keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it comes the issues of life. The Great Wall of China is an incredible specimen of human ability. When you think about the dimensions of it, it's 1,500 miles long, it's 30 feet high, it's 18 feet thick. And it was often boasted that the Great Wall of China was impenetrable, that nobody could break through those massive walls. But did you know that those walls were breached three times in the first 100 years? Not by breaking through, but by bribing the guards. God is saying, what I want you to do is to keep your heart. I want you to guard it. And nothing that the devil can throw at us can reach us if we're wearing that armor in Ephesians chapter 6. Our God is an awesome God. A great God. And that power is proven in the book of Exodus. But based on who God is, He wants us to draw the proper conclusion that we must live differently from the culture, that we must simply, in in a childlike way, be obedient to His will. And He wants us to live moral lives that can make such an influence on the people around us. I'm so thankful that we have such a great God who before He ever laid a single expectation on us, demonstrated how much he loved us by what he was willing to do for us and giving his son for us. This morning it may be that there's one who needs to respond to that great grace in obedience. And in that distinctive response, in a faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that repents of sin and is baptized to have those sins washed away, one enters into the greatest life, a life of such privilege and a life of such distinction A life in which we can influence those around us by living like Christ. Maybe you're ready to do that. It was so beautiful to see Pam on Thursday, to to focus on her life and to focus on and think about the decision that she needed to make. Feeling like that perhaps in the past, what she thought that she knew about baptism, she didn't understand it like she does now. What humility that she would make a response like that. Maybe there's someone who privately needs to make that decision or publicly in response to the invitation to act on that faith in Christ. Or maybe you're a child of God who needs to be restored to fellowship or maybe you need us to pray for you. If this is your invitation, we would urge you to come right now as we stand and sing.